0: Welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. Today, I am talking all about ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, or OHSS. OHSS is a complication which can happen anytime you stimulate the ovaries. So this can be with ovulation induction, medications like letrozole or clomid, or it can be with IVF or anytime you use gonadotropins like FSH or LH. Overall, OHSS is a major limiting side effect or complication. It can be very serious, and we take it very seriously, and we make decisions based on your risk about getting OHSS or not. Now, if you haven't been on the podcast for a couple of weeks, you may be wondering, where is Fertility in the News? Fertility in the News is our weekly segment where I talk about latest news and my interpretation or explaining part of the medical or science side behind it. I love doing Fertility in the News, but I am aware that these podcast episodes are often very evergreen, meaning you might not listen to this episode in February of 2023. You might listen to it later when you go through IVF or when you're concerned about OHSS. And because of that, I don't want to date it with old news or get you bored right away. So we are moving Fertility in the News to the weekly newsletter. If you are not aware, I do send out a newsletter every week, which is a labor of love, but love it because it includes some of my favorite things, my favorite plant-based recipes, answering some of your fertility questions and fertility in the news. So you can sign up at nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter if you would like to get the weekly newsletter. So let's dive in to all about OHSS now, and I will still end this episode as I do all episodes with fertility Q&A. All right, so let's jump in to ovarian hyperstimulation. First of all, let's understand how our body normally works and why we don't see this in natural cycles. And I'm going to explain a little bit about stimulation cycles and why they are a bit of a different beast. So when you think about what happens normally, I always use the analogy, if you can imagine that inside the ovary there is a vault and inside that vault are all of your eggs. Every month you have a group of eggs that come out of the vault and this is typically many, many more eggs than you would ovulate. So for example, an average 30 year old would have around 20 or so eggs in total available in a given month. Each egg grows inside a follicle, so you can't see the eggs, right? Eggs are microscopic, but you can see the follicles. So there's each egg inside a follicle. The brain then sends out FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone, well-named hormone that works to stimulate an egg to grow. As that Egg is growing, the follicle is growing, so the follicle is getting larger in size, the egg is becoming more mature, and it is making estrogen. That estrogen, when it gets to a high enough level to be associated with the mature egg, which is typically 200 picograms per milliliter, what happens then is that triggers the brain to release an LH surge. And the LH surge is the natural surge that causes that follicle to rupture and allow ovulation or allow the egg to come out of the follicle. That follicle then reforms into the corpus luteum, which is a different type of cyst. But this cyst is very hormonally active and it makes... Progesterone and estrogen. When you don't get pregnant in a given month, your corpus luteum can only live for about 12 days or so. And so when it is dying, your progesterone level drops, and that is the signal to your body to have a period. Now, when you get pregnant, the corpus luteum is now what we call rescued. And so what we mean by that is that it is stimulated to make progesterone in the entire luteal phase by LH pulses from the brain. So LH is controlling this cyst to be hormonally active. Now, HCG from a pregnancy can also cause the corpus luteum to be hormonally active and in a very different way because HCG is longer acting and it is constant, right? You don't have pulses of it from a pregnancy. You have constant and increasingly higher levels of HCG causing constant and increasingly higher stimulation of the corpus luteum. What is happening when you stimulate the ovaries? So number one, you're going to have multifollicular development. For the vast majority of people, not exclusively, but the vast majority, you're only going to see ovarian hyperstimulation when you have a lot of eggs, like when you're doing IVF. So most OHSS, when we really talk about it and when we are really concerned about it, is in the context of IVF. But it is very important to know that it could happen with any medication that makes you grow multiple eggs. And let's just think about what it is and kind of the science behind it before we go over warning signs and how we treat it and how it really makes us practice differently because if you're doing IVF, I bet you don't know that some of the things your team doesn't doesn't do is all because of OHSS and how bad it can be. So, number one, when you have multiple follicles, you now are going to have more estrogen, right? Each egg makes a set level of estrogen. So, when you have more follicles, you have more estrogen. That is part of the disease process and part of what is happening. When you have that large estrogen, you're also having really big ovaries. So, just some of the early symptoms in this process. Is that you're also having really large ovaries, which causes abdominal pain and can also cause discomfort or constipation or nausea and vomiting. But really, 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 what happens is when you get OHSS, you have what we called increased capillary permeability. That sounds like a really big medical word, but I want you to think about your capillaries, your smallest of the blood vessels, and what is happening is that the fluid doesn't stay in the blood vessels anymore. So what I often will tell patients, which is a little bit different, but that your high, high estrogen levels and some other high things that happen in these circumstances, specifically something called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. But let's just think about high estrogen from all of these follicles is now causing our blood vessels to be less stable. So when we think about what is in a blood vessel, you have red blood cells, white blood cells, but you also have a lot of water, right? That's what all these blood cells are moving in. And so if the outside of these blood vessels now is permeable to water, your water is going to shift out of them, and it's going to go in your stomach, and that's called ascites, and it can go in your lungs, and that is called like pleural effusions. So you get this leakage of fluid through the blood vessels, and you get what we call a fluid shift. So instead of having most of the fluid in your blood inside your blood vessels, it is now what we call third spacing. The fluid is now outside your blood vessels. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer so it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e.com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. Know my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash AAW for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. it's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com A-A-W and click Get Started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up, and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. So what is happening is all this liquid is moving out of your blood vessels. You're getting really bloated. You're getting ascites, fluid in your abdomen, fluid on your lungs, pleural fusions. You're getting really bad edema, right, when you get that swelling of your lower extremities. And that could get infected, so you can get infections of that fluid, so that's a really bad outcome. The fluid in your lungs can prevent you from breathing, can cause shortness of breath, but also take it one step further. If all the liquid, the water, is leaving your blood vessels, what's left? I'm thinking about what's left. Really, really thick blood, okay? And your body is not meant to have blood that is that thick. So that really thick blood is then going through the kidneys and the kidneys are not happy because now they're having to process this very thick blood. And so you can have kidney damage or even kidney failure. And that thick blood can get stasis, like it gets stagnant, especially because you can imagine you don't feel great, you're super bloated, you're laying around. And now you get blood clots. You can get blood clots in your vessels and these can even break off and become like a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot in the lungs. And so OHSS, can be very bad, right? Blood clots, a pulmonary embolism, fluid on your lungs, infections in your abdomen and your lungs, kidney failure. Those things sound terrible. And then you can also have electrolyte imbalance because your body is not having that water component, which also carries sodium and potassium and other important things. And you can have what we consider hypotension from hypovolemia. So even though your body Bloated, you have fluid everywhere. You don't have very much fluid inside your blood vessels, so it's very hard to perfuse your vital organs, and so your blood pressure can drop, and this can be really a serious thing. Now, OHSS is not overall common. We usually quote that it happens between three to six percent of IVF cycles, and the severe form is less than three percent, so really usually about one percent. So Having severe OHSS is not common, and I will say it is even more uncommon nowadays with modern practice than even when I first started in this field, so that's good to hear. There's also two different forms of OHSS, really this early onset and a late onset, and I think it's important to realize that just the estrogen from the follicles is not really the problem. OHSS does not really develop until you get a trigger shot. So when you're doing a cycle and I'm making somebody ovulate, you need to force them to have egg maturity and ovulation, meaning the process is interrupted by giving them the medication. And so HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin, the same hormone that we see in a pregnancy can be used to... Trigger somebody because we don't have a true LH trigger. We don't have an isolated LH compound. So that's really important to know. When we give people LH, we give it with FSH. So the way that we trigger people for IVF historically has been with HCG. Now we have different triggers. So now we can use a Lupron trigger, and I will explain that in a little bit. And that's really changed the game for us. But the two times when people tend to get symptoms, one, immediately after that HCG trigger, that HCG is making OHSS happen. It really activates those cells within the corpus luteum that are hormonally active. And HCG has a much, much longer half-life than LH. And so that is why we see a problem with these artificial or stimulated cycles that you don't see in nature. So when IVF first started, We used HCG because it will also fill the LH receptors, and so we would use HCG and That would be what we would do in order to get somebody to ovulate. And that was all we had. There were no other options. And then we also did a lot of fresh transfers. And the reason why that is important is because what happens when you get pregnant? You now have HCG made, but not just a one-time dose, right? This is a pregnancy. So you have constant and increasing production of HCG, therefore stimulating those corpus luteum cells, as we already know, but keeping them hormonally active and making OHSS worse and worse. So... There's an early onset symptoms develop after the trigger shot and so usually you see them start within one to three days after HCG trigger and then there's a later onset which would be about 10 days after the trigger shot and this is when you're pregnant and now you have placental production of HCG really constantly stimulating these follicles and these corpus luteum to make more and more hormones. And then we classify OHSS by severity. So there's actually some official definitions. Mild OHSS is considered abdominal distension, pain, discomfort, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. If you have moderate, you then also have some ascites, which you see on ultrasound. So you look with the ultrasound and you can see fluid in the abdomen. And then severe is when you have those symptoms, plus now you have hydrothorax or pleural effusions you have breathing difficulties or you have hypotension low blood pressure or you have evidence of hemoconcentration so that thick blood or a blood clot or abnormalities in your electrolytes or your renal function so the real severity here happens when that blood gets thicker and thicker the people who are at risk for ohss this probably makes sense for you so if you have a lot of eggs if you are young if you have over-responded to medications before, if you have had a history of OHSS, if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome. I will add on to here if you are having a fresh transfer or you're having a transfer in your cycle because you have the potential ability to get pregnant or if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea, meaning your brain doesn't send out any FSH or LH because now I have limited options for what I can do for the trigger and the short answer is I have to give you the trigger shot of HCG. That's all you'll respond to. So you're already at a little bit of risk. As we watch you through the cycle, some things might make us more concerned. So having really high estrogen levels, having a ton of follicles, especially in the mature range, having a really high egg count at egg retrieval. I am going to tell you a story about a patient I had and then I'm going to tell you how we modify some of our protocols based on this and overall how we treat it and some of the symptoms and warning signs. So I had a patient with PCOS. She was 30 years old. Her AMH was 22 so amh is anti malarian hormone and as you know it is a marker of your ovarian reserve and in her age range we would normally expect an amh to be more like two to four so 22 off the charts and in fact when she came in and did an antral follicle count i counted over 60 follicles again 16 to 20 normal for her age so off the charts she came in to the office with a chief complaint of I want to be pregnant and I don't want to do IVF, which is pretty polarizing. I mean, I know nobody wants to do IVF, but for somebody to put it on the new patient paperwork was very interesting. So I talked to her and it turns out she has terrible PCOS, very thin, very bad PCOS, has never ovulated on her own, meaning all of her periods have either been induced by progesterone or by the birth control pill. And she tried to ovulate to ovulation induction medications like letrozole and Clomid and didn't respond, what we call refractory PCOS. And we see this in people who have a really, really high AMH or a ton of follicles. And so in this case, she is somebody who really needs FSH- injectable FSH to ovulate but the problem is she has tried it before and she never can get a safe ovulatory number meaning she never will just ovulate one or two eggs she would you know grow 10 follicles or more from even the smallest amount. And people have very sensitive thresholds. So I warn every patient with PCOS. I say, hey, you might respond to oral medication and injectable medication has risks. And I do see some patients who either do not respond or over respond and I cannot get them in the safe middle of the line zone for ovulation. When that happens, the risk here is if you grow 10 mature follicles, the risk is that then you're going to go and have 10 babies right? You could have a really high order multiples. And in fact, this is the type of treatment where John and Kate plus eight, if you're old like me and you remember these reality shows when people had these high order multiples, this is how those people have babies, not IVF. With the exception of Octomom, which was an IVF situation. But typically we see tripleton and more from ovulation induction because you're releasing all these eggs you're having intercourse at the same time putting tons of sperm there and you're not limiting the number of children that could be conceived at one time and of course that's extremely dangerous so those cycles were always canceled she proceeded to do IVF in another country so not here And in the country she was doing it, they only did HCG triggers and they did fresh transfers. And so what happened to this patient is she had a ton of eggs growing. They triggered her really early, meaning her follicles weren't mature. She went through an egg retrieval and only had a couple of mature eggs had one of them that went to embryo and made it into a blastocyst and they transferred it and she proceeded to get so sick with OHSS she ended up hospitalized she had to get dialysis for a while she needed blood thinners had an infection and she miscarried so she was extremely sick and so she was extremely traumatized by that experience so i had to explain to her some of what i'm explaining to you is that That was not appropriate medical care for somebody in her situation. So some of the things that we do now, which have changed, the first thing is that for patients who you can, you can do something called a Lupron trigger. So a Lupron trigger, Lupron is what we call a GNRH agonist. Let's just think about the physiology of the brain again. So we've talked about the pituitary gland many times, and this is what sends out FSH and LH. Again, FSH grows follicles, LH causes ovulation, supports the corpus luteum. Well, a GnRH agonist like Lupron upregulates GnRH, which comes from the hypothalamus. It is gonadotropin-releasing hormone, and it's really what stimulates the pituitary gland. So when you take Lupron, what actually happens is first the brain is going to release any FSH and LH that it has. So if you take a one-time bolus of Lupron, you actually get what some people call a flare. And this flare of releasing your natural FSH and LH, that natural LH can bind to the LH receptors and cause you to ovulate. It can function as a trigger. And so that is what a Lupron trigger is. Now, patient selection is key in this situation because number one, you cannot use a Lupron trigger for somebody who has hypothalamic amenorrhea because what is that? The hypothalamus does not send out any GnRH to the pituitary gland and therefore the pituitary gland does not send out FSH and LH. So what good will a GnRH agonist do if the hypothalamus is not gonna send out any anyway and the pituitary gland is not responding. So when the brain's not working, this is not an option. And sometimes this is confusing, I'll admit. Patients can have FHA and PCOS. So somebody might not have periods and you presume it's PCOS, but they also have hypothalamic amenorrhea, meaning they've got two problems going on. So it's really important. A good menstrual history or thinking through the patients is really essential. The second thing here is that you cannot use a Lupron trigger If you're using Lupron for suppression, right, that makes sense because it only works with that first exposure to Lupron. So any protocol where you have had Lupron, you can't do this. And that means you can only use it in what we consider an antagonist cycle or an ovulation blocker cycle. So you're using some other type of suppression. Now you can come in and Lupron trigger so I can't decide in the middle of a cycle, oh my gosh, her estrogen is super high and she's having a lot of eggs. Let me go use a Lupron trigger if you're already on Lupron. The other thing is that people with a high egg count, so I guess number one, if you have a high egg count concern for OHSS, you should be considering an antagonist protocol with the Lupron trigger. Number two, you should not have a fresh transfer. I know, Fresh transfers can save you money. They can get you pregnant faster. They sound very appealing, especially if you're young and you don't have necessarily a reason or a need to do genetic testing, but you qualify in for a freeze all protocol purely based on your risk for ovarian hyperstimulation. And you might be disappointed in that, but you should accept it because you do not want to be like my patient who was in another country who had a transfer and miscarried because she got so sick because she got pregnant. So for me, doing a freeze-all, freezing the embryos, regardless of genetic testing or not, is the appropriate treatment if there is a risk for OHSS. It is going to prevent you from getting sick. It probably is also going to have higher pregnancy rates because that endometrial environment is not normal if it's exposed to all of those hormones. And this has changed too, right? In order to tell somebody, I feel confident in freezing all your embryos, You have to have good freezing technology. So now that our freezing technology of embryos is better and almost all embryos survive the freeze-thaw, we feel more confident recommending to patients, do not transfer, just freeze them. So this is a huge shift from IVF 10 to 15 years ago when freezing wasn't as good. We were putting multiple embryos in a patient at once. We weren't doing a Lupron trigger. Patients had a much higher risk of developing OHSS. And the worst OHSS I've seen in the past 10 years or so was a patient who had a fresh transfer. She actually did a minimal stimulation IVF protocol. She did InvoCell and she still had OHSS even though we understimulated her for her egg potential. And the reason why it was so bad was because she had a fresh transfer and got pregnant. So that is something not to fight about if your team is telling you it is too risky to have a fresh transfer. Another thing to do to modify, so choose the right protocol, choose the right trigger, do not do an embryo transfer, and the other is to start on lower doses of gonadotropins. So doing a more stair-step-up approach, start low and increase if you're not seeing the response, is much smarter than a step-down approach where you start somebody on a very high dose and then you try to pull it back. And then I guess I would end with low threshold for cycle cancellation if you know that it is somebody who must have an HCG trigger. So not giving HCG can prevent OHSS. So if somebody suddenly has a high number of eggs developing, a very high estrogen, and you're not in a place where you could give a Lupron trigger, then sometimes canceling the cycle is absolutely the safest thing. And the last thing would be sometimes we do something called coasting. So if you see somebody getting really high, that very rapid estrogen or a really high number of follicles, and they can't have a Lupron trigger, sometimes you'll just kind of stop the meds or give a much lower dose and see if that can almost kill off some of the smaller follicles. So it's a give and take. So modifying the protocols and really having a team that's watching closely and being observant can be really helpful. Now, what are the symptoms of OHSS? Because I think that that is something that is really important to think about so that you know what to look for. The most common symptoms include abdominal bloating, nausea, and weight gain due to the fluid third spacing. In those severe cases, again, that's less than 1%, that dehydration can cause you'd have low or no urine outpour. So like that's a very concerning sign. Or difficulty breathing, shortness of breath because of fluid in the chest. If you did get unilateral, so one-sided leg swelling, that would be concerning for a blood clot. If you had severe chest pain or if you passed out, that would be concerning. And so I would hope that your treatment team would review these with you. We'll talk about bloating, distention, pain, nausea. Those are pretty common. I'm not that worried. If you start vomiting, you're not holding food down. You can't urinate. You get a fever. You can't breathe well. I am now highly concerned. So those are some of those things to think about. Now, there's no treatment that will make it go away. And I think that's very important to know. Time Is what will help. We do have supportive treatment, so we can try to manage some of the symptoms and we can try to decrease that estrogen and we can try to stabilize some of those blood vessels. And so that is what we try to do as we progress along with watching you really closely. All right, so what can you do if you think somebody has? OHSS. One, you should encourage electrolyte-rich fluid. So instead of just drinking water, drinking things with electrolytes can be really helpful. That's considered supportive treatment. What we also are going to want to do is think about medication. So something we sometimes do is cabergoline. So cabergoline is a medication that can be used for prolactin abnormalities in the brain, but interestingly, it also inhibits VEGF receptor. Remember, that controls vascular permeability. And so if given early, it can also help reduce OHSS or shorten it. Even with cabergoline, some people still do get severe symptoms. So it's not 100%, but it can help. Another thing is that aspirin can sometimes help with OHSS. However, aspirin can also cause bleeding and you just poked a needle into the ovary. So that one to me is a give and take. I sometimes will start it later when I'm not concerned About ovarian bleeding anymore, but maybe I'm concerned about blood clot development. So sometimes I will use it then. And you can also give Lovenox for blood clots as a prophylactic if you are really concerned that somebody might be developing or at high risk for a blood clot. You then can try to cut down estrogen production. So some people will use a GnRH antagonist like Ganorelix or cetratide, your ovulation blockers, sometimes letrozole, which is an oral medication that will decrease estrogen in the periphery. And then preventive care, sometimes if you know you have PCOS, metformin has actually been shown to have a protective effect against developing OHSS. So I will often put PCO patients on metformin if they're doing IVF, even if their insulin is fine, just because it has been shown to be helpful. Now, when it gets to severe OHSS, again, bad. Now you're hospitalized. You might be getting the fluid drained off your abdomen. That's called a paracentesis. You probably need to get IV fluids and electrolytes replaced. You probably do need medication to prevent development of a blood clot. You need your electrolytes and your kidneys watched closely. And you also might need antibiotics if there's a risk for infection, if that fluid is just sitting there. So ultimately, that third space fluid will re-enter the intravascular space and everything will get back to normal, which if you're not having a pregnancy test, you're not pregnant within 10 to 14 days of onset of symptoms, meaning the corpus luteums will die. They will stop being hormonally active. HCG will get out of your system. You will get better. It is a self-limited disease. You should not go and operate with somebody with OHSS unless it is an Absolute emergency. And the ovaries are very big, so you can get torsion or a corpus luteum rupture and internal bleeding. So, those things can happen. So, in summary, OHSS is serious. It can cause you to be very, very sick. The key is identifying people who might be at risk based on their ovarian reserve, age, and history. Choosing an appropriate protocol, choosing an appropriate dose, choosing an appropriate trigger, not being afraid to cancel the cycle, planning to freeze all the embryos, and giving patients monitoring signs for their disease. Again, pregnancy will make OHSS worse and it will make it last longer. If you are at risk for OHSS, avoiding a pregnancy by freezing your embryos transfer at a later time when it's safe is the best and the clear medical recommendation and then the warning signs that i give my team difficulty breathing continued vomiting inability to keep down fluids decreased urine output or no urine in 12 hours a fever one-sided leg swelling facial numbness weakness or passing out those are emergent. I want to know about those things. So I hope this helped you learn a little bit about OHSS and why this changes some of the protocols we choose and really why in some patients we have set choices on what we can do. I do want to answer some of your questions. So every week, I have fertility Q&A for fertility's sake. You can ask these questions on Instagram. So every Monday, we put a question box up on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MT, and you can put your questions there. Some of these questions will be answered in the newsletter, some on Instagram themselves, and then some right here at the end of every single podcast. All right, so let's answer a few questions now. One, can you transfer embryos from one clinic to another? Yes, most of the time so I've had patients transfer embryos especially as I have moved clinics but the truth is everybody in every lab is different and my lab won't take embryos if they are not confident in where they were frozen how they were frozen the device they were frozen on or the ability to thaw them so you might find that a new clinic has to evaluate the records before they could give you a thought on this and that's just the honest answer I do have a lot of patients who travel and come back to get their embryo transfer. So even if you've moved away, sometimes you just fly yourself back and we still do the transfer so that we don't have to worry about that. But if you're transferring care and you're wanting to move your embryos most of the time, that is fine. Can you please talk about cycles after a miscarriage? Will it return to normal after some time? Thank you. It should return to normal. So the first thing is that if you have a miscarriage, I really want to see somebody having a negative pregnancy test. Pregnancy tests have not a zero threshold for HCG, but if you are constantly having a positive pregnancy test six weeks after a miscarriage, I'm concerned that there could be some retained products of conception. This can ultimately lead to scarring of the uterus, and it can also cause bleeding, abnormal spotting, and a consistently positive pregnancy test. So that is something you want to be looking for. Because as you have a miscarriage, HCG is still in your system, it usually does prevent the brain from sending out FSH to start growing the next egg, right? Just think about it. If you're pregnant, you're not going to be ovulating another egg, and the body often doesn't really know that you're not pregnant when there's still HCG floating around. So it is extremely common after a miscarriage to have your first cycle delayed significantly, at least until your HCG is down, now, if you have had a negative pregnancy test and you haven't had a period from four to six weeks after that, that's that's abnormal. Something is up. And so I would absolutely consider going to get an evaluation at that point because the miscarriage should no longer have any impact on your cycles. They should completely resume to normal. Do you definitely ovulate if you see an LH surge or a temperature increase? Usually, yes. So a temperature increase, yes. So a temp increase when you check basal body temperature is because once you start making progesterone, you have an increase in your core body temperature. And so that shift of temp is due to progesterone production, the end. Now, an LH surge is a strong indication that you ovulate, and especially if you get a period 12 to 15 days afterward, then yes, that was absolutely an ovulation. The reason why it is a usually as the answer is that patients with PCOS Mm -hmm. sometimes as a part of their disease process can actually have endogenously high pulses of LH and those LH pulses are stimulating ovarian testosterone production and it's part of the disease process. So sometimes patients with PCOS will actually get falsely positive LH tests. And they know that because they get positives all the time or they don't get a period later. And this is why personally, I don't rely on OPK testing when I'm trying to induce ovulation in somebody who has PCOS. So if I'm giving you Clomid or Letrozole, I'm going to bring you into the office for an ultrasound so I can see how you actually respond because i need to know for sure i can't risk having a false positive test all right we just had a baby via ivf when can i do another embryo transfer every clinic's going to be a little bit different i will say probably at the shortest is going to be six months to give the uterus healing i like to do it a year after the month you gave birth so i just want you to have the highest chance of that baby being successful. I want your uterus to be healed and having a devastating pregnancy outcome because the placenta wasn't able to grow in all the way. is just not worth it. So our current practice is, you know, if you gave birth in January of 2022, is that the soonest I would do an embryo transfer would be January of 2023, but we would still be getting the process underway. As you know, you don't just walk into the clinic and get an embryo transfer. So we would still start the process months before that so that we can get everything moving forward and what is the best approach to ivf with a low ovarian reserve at an older age over age 40 you know this is a harder approach and this is where you need very personalized care you need somebody who's really going to look at your egg count give you expectations talk you through how many embryos they expect that would be genetically normal I'm a believer of genetic testing and pounding out multiple cycles in a row if needed. That way we can find a genetically normal embryo and get you to transfer in the context of having the highest success rates possible. I believe in canceling cycles if you're not meeting goals. That way you're making the best use of your time. I do have friends and colleagues who think, well, you're not going to have very many genetically normal embryos of this age, so we should just do fresh transfers and put them in and give them a chance. And even though that could lead to pregnancy because not all embryos are abnormal, I don't love it. And I'm extremely biased because I am somebody who had a lot of miscarriages. And so to me, having miscarriages when they could have been prevented is something I don't really find tolerable. But two, getting not pregnant... I know I can do something a couple weeks later. I can move forward. Having a miscarriage may take you out of the game for three to four months, depending on how long that goes. And that time is extremely valuable if you are over age 40 and you have low reserve. So ultimately I say, personalized cycles, talk to your doctor about expectations, genetic testing and be prepared for multiple cycles it's a marathon it is doable but you need to know what you're up against again i hope you guys like this episode learned a little bit about ohss you can ask your fertility questions every monday on instagram at natalie crawford md you can also sign up for the newsletter to see more of these questions answered again that is natalie crawford slash newsletter thanks friends Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.